three, two, one, liftoff. We choose to go to the moon. That's one small step for man. Welcome to Anthropon, brought to you by the Society for Cultural Anthropology on colanth.org, in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. I'm your host, Willie Lempert, and this is the third and final episode in our special three-part podcast series on the anthropologies of outer space. While outer space is a field site far from what some of our listeners will associate with anthropology, we hope that you will continue with us on this journey to better understand what it means to be human beyond the planet on which we have evolved. The intro you just heard was made possible by the recent release of a large NASA sound library, reaching back to their earliest missions. You'll be hearing a variety of these rich clips throughout this series, such as the current audio, which consists of radio waves recorded at the edge of the Earth's atmosphere. Engaging deeply with the three co-authors of the article Relational Space and Earthly Installation in the journal Cultural Anthropology, we seek to connect their work broadly with current events, popular culture, and the NASA sounds. Building on the first episode in this series, Haircuts and Billionaires, with David Valentine, as well as the second episode, Moondust and Cosmopolitics, with Deborah Battaglia. In this episode, I talk with Dr. Valerie Olson about the rise of systems thinking in the Anthropocene, space architecture and garbage, and food and health off of Earth. My name is Valerie Olson. I am an environmental anthropologist in the anthropology department at the University of California at Irvine. I'm interested in the technologies, the socialities, and the politics of environmental extremity. So examples of that would be spaceflight or large-scale environmental threats and disasters. I'm also interested in the ways in which social groups organize themselves around modern concepts of spatial relations like ecology or systems. These are concepts that, of course, don't map well onto geographic and territorial spatial designations. So I'm very interested in the forms of relationality that they create, such as how system thinking and building and imaginaries create new subjectivities and control and shape contemporary social processes. That is wonderfully put. If you wouldn't mind speaking a little bit about what anthropologists in particular, in their perspective, brings to the study of human relationships with outer space and outer space travel. Yes. So it occurred to me that this question actually could be turned around in an interesting way. So we might ask instead what the anthropology of outer space brings to the study of human relations. And this to me is extremely interesting because it brings us to the problem of how people create relational formations that include elements that exceed the direct everyday experience, such as when a nation or a, a group of people link Earth and outer space in economic, political, and sociocultural systemic terms, such as when people talk about creating a solar system-based economy, so that the idea is not just to extend Earth things out there, but to bring space earthward. So an example would be the Obama administration's plan to sort of lasso an asteroid and bring it inside the Earth's moon system as a scientific or economic source. And so in this sort of situation, the whole notion of what counts as the quote-unquote human environment as a relational surrounding gets reconfigured in other terms. 
so namely other material or energetic terms. And maybe another example would be that shift towards solar energy would be an example in which something like this establishes different sets of material and energetic conditions for national modes of production and socio-political organization based on more direct relationships with the sun and the sky versus indirect ones based on stored solar energy of fossil fuel. In that way, this configures basis materialities and social relations based on strategies that take in radiant energy from the outside rather than, you know, recirculating carbon or radioactive matter within the boundary of the atmosphere. So then what counts as the environment under these new conditions? So this has implications, I think, for the rather politically and maybe technically fraught social scientific take-up of the Anthropocene concept, for example, which is a geological term narrowly bounded from the crust of the Earth to the upper atmosphere. And yet that narrow swath of space is being assumed in these terms to be the human environment, despite the continued role of outer space and science and technologies in producing equally politicized knowledge about what a planet is within a larger spatial and temporal context. I like how you turned that around. <laughs> Speaking of the Anthropocene, I wonder if now might be a natural time to talk about that a little bit more in, in terms of space as environment in relation to questions of the contribution to space system science to Earth system science, which you were just discussing now. Sure. You know, the, so the article that I wrote with Lisa McCary, who I'll probably mention later, has a really exciting book that just came out. We uh, were interested in the Anthropocene concept in the history of the Anthropocene concept, which is, as I mentioned, a geological term focused on material changes in this very narrow swath of environmental space between the surface of the Earth and the high atmosphere. So she works on space as place, and I work on outer space as environment. We've been colleagues for a long time. We were graduate students at the same time, working on our projects concurrently. And one of the things that we both noticed about this term was that conceptually and politically it had these boundaries that in fact emerges from the unification, the cross-disciplinary unification of geology, astronomy, biology, space science, and the production of knowledge in particular from comparative planetology. So for example, James Hansen, a very well-known climate change activist, who coined the greenhouse effect term, who was a NASA scientist. He worked on these matters as a scientist at NASA because he was interested in the planet Venus's atmosphere. As we looked into this history, we found significant examples of the contribution of comparative planetology and space science to the understanding of the Anthropocene concept and even noticed in the first original article by the authors, Kretzmann and Stormer, who coined the term, that they also were concerned with outer space in this article. So we wanted to just call attention to the sort of politics of the construction of the Anthropocene concept and the ways in which we argue that people who use it have created some environmental boundaries on what is really a polymorphic environmental space in terms of what contributes to the concept historically and scientifically. We call attention to the idea that the Anthropocene concept actually creates a bifurcated idea of environment, so an inner human environment that matters to humans on Earth and a sort of outer backgrounded environment that actually maps onto the nature notion of 
space of nature divided away from human beings. So that was our interest to sort of take the Anthropocene concept and give it our particular take on putting it into a conceptual historical frame. Yeah, very nicely put. And in the sort of next related question, if you'd like to talk about your book, I'm personally interested in that word extreme. It'd be great to get a sense of your larger project. Definitely. So the term extreme environment, I'm interested in it as a cultural construct. And in particular, I'm interested in how it's become sort of a modern spatial kind of environment. And space and disaster areas, prisons, cold places, underwater places, places that require technologies for human survival, all of these spaces, which are incredibly different historically, socially, spatially, have been lumped together in this new techno-scientific term, extreme environment. And I'm interested in how outer space has become not an exceptional space in a way anymore, but one space within this category of environmental kind. So my book is an ethnography of U.S. human spaceflight as a political, geographic, and political, ecological practice. Its analytic concerns are much broader, however. I am very much concerned with the governmental production of space as environment rather than just simply as space, and how that work shapes the production of environmental knowledge and politics in general in the United States. So spaceflight in the U.S. is an iconic practice for governmental productions of national spatial arenas beyond formal legal territorial boundaries. So as you might know, you can't own places in space yet. But it's also a mode for formalizing knowledge about the concepts of environment and systems. So this is the analytic frame, the theoretical interest that I follow in the book. So I'm using a decade of ethnographic work among hundreds of government spaceflight workers and spaceflight activists in the U.S. associated with one of the U.S. biggest employers, NASA, to argue in this book that you can't understand the role of environment and system as terms in terrestrial settings without understanding the ongoing role of spaceflight in producing their earthly power and authority. You know, the idea of looking at the system construct that I'm doing, I think it's been interesting just because, you know, it's been funny for me to figure out in tandem with the senior people I'm working with on the book project that the system concept is so taken for granted. It's so much a part of this course, either to be critiqued or to be just simply used and taken for granted that nobody's ever sat back and thought about it as a cultural object and done a sustained examination of what the production of systems thought and systems subjectivities and all that stuff is. And I would never have come to that if it wasn't for my space project and if it wasn't for people in my space project going, you know, this whole thing is about systems, isn't it? And I'm like, mm-hmm. <laughs> about solar systems and human systems and atomic systems. The fact that system provides a structure for scaling. It provides this weird kind of matrix structure for the production of scalar relations. And that's exactly what I'm arguing in the book. And this is what it looks like. So I never would have figured that out. First, it was about space as nature. And then I realized no one was talking about nature. None of my interlocutors ever used the term nature. Then I was like, okay, it's about environment. And then people reading my data would say, yeah, but the term that everybody uses besides environment is system. And system and environment are these coupled terms now that structure contemporary politics and sociology, but no one's really examining how that works. What is the relationship between the Obama administration making system one of the key terms of children's education 
and the production of space systems. Well, as a matter of fact, read chapter one because those two things have to do with one another. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's kind of crazy. Yeah, I mean, uh-huh. even my writing schedule, it's all been thought through into system. I'm trying to develop a system for writing this dissertation. And system is the word that comes up over and over, not a strategy, a system. And it's like, if I could just right. get the system right, everything would be great. Systems feel <laughs> strong, and they it gives you a sense of safety that oh, a perfect system is like a, a blanket. Yeah. Yes, and that goes back. I mean, that's 300 years old, and I had to trace the history of that. Why did system emerge as it did, and why did it become a term that is affectively important as well as politically and philosophically, conceptually, socially, you know, spatially? Yeah, it's a fun story, you know. So so the book is about outer space, but it's also about the deployment of system and environment as conjoined political and scientific and technical terms. Now, our listeners might wonder, you know, how does one do a study of this? Maybe you could just very briefly talk about what does fieldwork in this area look like? We often don't have the budgets to go into space or do things like that. So how do you get at these questions on a daily level and and engaging with people who are deeply involved in the outer space business or projects? Absolutely. So, yes, you know, field workers are supposed to have direct experiences with their fields. But, of course, I didn't have the gear to do that. Like most people, I was grounded on Earth. And actually, like most of my interlocutors, of course, there's only about 400 people who've been in outer space in highly technically supported situations in spaceflight vehicles and habitats. So this ethnography is a earthbound ethnography of human spaceflight, but that's where spaceflight happens for the most part. So in terms of ethnographic settings, I begin as I worked in an underwater space habitat mission scenario where astronauts get trained to live in outer space. So I worked some behavioral health research around this mission, around three missions, actually, underwater missions. Some of my fieldwork involved diving down to this habitat 63 feet below the surface of the ocean in the Florida Keys. I also worked among spaceflight physicians and biologists looking at how they keep the human body supported in space and the ways in which interventions in the health of the human being in spaceflight settings does not happen as it does in regular biomedicine on Earth in the human body itself, but most of these interventions appear in the spaces between the body and the environment. And this is something I write about and call eco-biopolitics because it's a shift in the understanding of the human-environment relationship medically such that making interventions into the spaces and environments around the human being become just as medicalized as interventions in the human body. So I also did work among space habitat architects and industrial designers trying to work on the design of space habitat in which people could survive. And what was interesting about that is that the habitat in the human body kind of converged in a way so that it was hard to tell where the habitat began and the body ended in terms of how designers and architects were using the relationship between the human body and the environment and designing it in new ways. And this maps onto you know, a lot of new terrestrial emerging developments in architecture and design, like lead design buildings. A lot of these philosophies of buildings and bodies as being ecologically or synergistically intertwined and not bounded from one another is 
part of the so-called green or environmental design and engineering movement toward better integrating human beings as systemic subjects into larger environments as systemic spaces. So I did that work. I also worked among asteroid impact activists, people trying to design technologies to keep asteroids from impacting the Earth and disrupting human evolution. So looking at the sort of scales involved in space technology thinking and planning, the temporal and spatial scales involved in making new political ecology for people on Earth that involve space. Then I also look at the environmental ethics of space colonization. So talking with people involved in trying to prevent the transfer of microbes from Earth to space as a matter of preserving scientific integrity of the search for extraterrestrial life, but also among people interested in contacting extraterrestrial intelligence. And I look not at the sort of biological dimension of this or the sort of life-based dimension, but what kind of environmental ethics or environmental ethical concerns are being generated and uh, understanding the boundaries between humans and environments and the politics of those boundaries. And I also look at a local situation in Southern California, which is the history of the contamination of groundwater by the aerospace industry and the ways in which aerospace companies are developing systems to counteract water purification and filtering systems to counteract the effects of space flight on earthly environmental life. So looking at the sort of environmental ethics of contemporary aerospace industrial behaviors, how do people spend so much time worrying about the environmental health of astronauts in space and yet contaminating Earth at the same time and how this is becoming an issue for aerospace companies and institutions like NASA. Yeah, the breadth of different topics around space is amazing. The diversity of different arenas involved in the sort of systems you discuss. And it occurs to me that there's so many possible arenas from you diving underwater and the people worried about contamination and asteroids. There's a lot of very human concerns. I wonder if any sort of stories spring to mind that you found particularly interesting. Well, sure. One of the impressive moments for me among many was to talk to young aerospace engineers, people moving through NASA, working as interns and working in their first jobs in NASA, and some of their concerns with their understanding of the relationship between space technologies and earthly environmental technologies. So I remember speaking to, to engineers who were spending their time learning and training how to support astronauts on the International Space Station, but also working on water filtration systems that they were convinced would be based on space technologies. They were convinced would be portable to various environments on Earth that they considered extreme, so remote environments, the places where infrastructures don't extend, so that they could help people create autonomous water systems in places on Earth. These are young people involved in organizations like Engineers Without Borders. And it was interesting to see the, the sort of cultural looping or the social looping effect that this generation of space flight engineers and designers have a very intense sort of interest in creating an Earth-space relationship through technology that definitely has, especially in American historical context and cultural context, a utopian flavor to it. But it's interesting to see how 
the terms are deeply environmental and deeply ecological. These are young people who are sort of convinced that outer space is not outer and not spatial, really. It's quite connected to earthly life and quite environmentally integrated. That is so interesting in that this idea that it's a sort of ethereal, faraway distraction and waste of money that some people who don't know very much about outer space travel and imagine you know, going to Mars while there's problems on Earth. It sounds like that is not the sort of divided perspective that a lot of people, young people it sounds like, in this human realm feel, that there's really that connection. Perhaps the excitement of space is what can create things like Velcro and all sorts of innovations that can be very helpful to people. And it sounds like especially people struggling on Earth. Yeah, there is um, an extent to which, you know, there certainly is a, a colonial and empire dimension to space which can't be ignored. But the paradox and complexity of that is it's sort of implicated with other kinds of dreams of social liberation or human becoming attached to it. I mean, just the other day I was on campus and ran into a big group of small children, probably third graders. They were all on a field trip and they were wearing t-shirts and blazons with a logo for the May Jemison Foundation. She's an astronaut who now runs the 100-year Starship Foundation. So getting young people together to try to develop a Starship, go into space and look for new places for human settlement. And uh, it's quite interesting because the interest that she expresses in this has to do with an interest in opening up space for all groups of people interested in thinking about it as an extension of human life on Earth. So there's just a whole array of intentions and involvement. And the interesting thing about it is that these kinds of projects are deeply involved in, deeply embedded in the military and governmental programs of the United States, for example. The Starship program is a DARPA project, which is a Department of Defense Advanced Research Program but also has a dimension of children's education and STEM education, promotion, and that kind of thing. So I'm really interested in the ways in which you can't necessarily, when it comes to people actually involved in these projects, you can't reduce their intentions to one particular set of reasons. Yeah, really nicely said. It reminds me of something David said talking about even the sort of entrepreneurs. You know, we're used to not taking seriously when billionaires say that they're not in it for the money and that they have these larger dreams about human progress. But there's a way in which that is true, That, and it sounds like here even these giant massive government programs related to defense could be full of people with very diverse and different ideas and have a variety of sort of motivations that are not necessarily obvious or don't necessarily have consistency from the top to the bottom of organizations. Yes, absolutely. And I think this is part of the story of different forms of social interest in outer space that take various forms, technological, cosmological, cultural, social, militaristic, imperial. And it is the complexity of that that constitutes what might count as what some people are calling an emerging space studies subtropical discipline involving anthropologists, sociologists, historians, geographers, people interested in the verticality of human spatial life. 
I think that last sentence really lays out the whole topic perfectly. I'd like to go back for a moment to something you talked about around the human body, around medical baselines, about you know, even you, it sounds like you went diving, trying to really, mm-hmm. for our listeners, paint a sense of the human body's relationship in outer space and the perception of maybe an extreme environment on the body. Yes, definitely. You know, human bodies in outer space become impaired in terrestrial terms. And space medicine is a variant of environmental medicine and occupational medicine, and it's concerned with the body as an environmental object, not entirely biological. I interviewed a biologist who was saying to me that nutritional status of the human body, whether the human being is hungry or not hungry or adequately fed and feeling well in space has an impact on the machine, on the spacecraft itself, because a poorly supported human being not getting the right kinds of nutrition or the right kinds of biological support could end up creating an environmental disaster for everyone in the spacecraft. So the integrity of the spacecraft, the integrity of the environment is a continuum between the body, the environment, and the technology. And there is a constant sense of connection between those things so that sometimes the best way to intervene in the health of the body is to intervene in some dimension of the environment itself to increase the functionality of the environment has the effect on the human body so that the interventions happen completely outside the body. And this way of connecting the body and environment and the things in the environment and technology becomes a standard way of thinking about well-being in spaceflight. It's very different from biomedicine, which tends to background the environment, even in public health the intimacy of the body and the environment is not as powerful as it is in aerospace biomedicine. And it never ceased to amaze me to watch people concerned with the health of the body be so technically proficient in understanding the function of a machine or the physics of the space environment, radiation, microgravity, all of these other things. You can't be a space physician or a space nutritionist and not understand how gravity works, how radiation operates, and the function and the ways that the machines involved in life support operate. So it's an incredibly interdisciplinary field and really underscores a sort of next stage in interdisciplinary intersections among disciplines that historically have kept themselves far apart from one another, like engineering and medicine. I really like that you mentioned food. The way that NASA was presented to me as a kid was through space shuttle and the moon landing, but it was also through space ice cream. And I remember several moments Mm -hmm. when we would eat space ice cream where you go to the Smithsonian Museum and it did not (laughs) taste good, but there was something, there was a delight in that it was called ice cream and the packaging, it felt like a future you were involved in. And I wonder if you might just talk about now, very specifically, the foods that people talk about and like, and and that even marketing element you mentioned, little kid. I think space ice cream was probably the most strongly emotionally associated thing about outer space when I was a, a little kid. It seems to me that NASA 
had a sort of intentional way in which they marketed space ice cream. There's something about that. It's an extreme environment, but people are eating ice cream in outer space. Yeah, not very good ice cream, obviously. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting to see the ways in which space science and Earth understandings of food are paralleling one another. So, for example, this prepackaged awful food of the past, which was sort of a chemistry delivery system to keep astronauts well, is undergoing the same kind of transformation as the understanding of food on Earth, so that now astronauts are growing food in space because the understanding that food produces a kind of well-being, the production and eating of food produces intangible kinds of well-being that include a relationship with the plants, with the whole food, with the production of and cooking of food is being integrated into space science and technology so that now you have bikinis and lettuce being grown on the space station as a step forward toward thinking about sustainable outer space living. And meanwhile, on Earth, you have very interesting developments where the increasing problems with the use of pesticides and also the decrease in farmland in the United States is producing experiments in vertical built agricultural systems in buildings, which are hydroponic systems being artificially sustained so that you can grow fields and fields of lettuce in a multi-story building. So it's interesting to see how space and earth technologies are in this sort of interesting exchange with one another. That might be a nice transition to some of the sounds that NASA released in their big archive. And some of the ones that I chose in relationship to our discussion is one, you know, that infamous golden record. In particular, the relationship between the sounds of Earth on that golden record in terms of in just environmental sounds or a mother kissing a child, a bus, a train, that going into outer space and overcoming the challenges of space helps us turn around and see Earth in a new way. It gives a sort of perspective, and Earth only has a sort of coherency as a planet in relation to other planets and other places. Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. And I think when you hear comments like Gordon Cooper's comments that space is a strange environment, you recognize that even 50 60 years ago, space was being rethought as not just space, not as empty space, not as disconnected space, but as a place and as an environment. And I think this is being picked up by anthropologists and geographers and sociologists and historians who are trying to look at modern understandings of outer space as something undergoing powerful translations and transitions so that thinking of space as place and as environment is a process that is in relation to rethinking Earth as a place and as an environment. 
So I'm really excited about Lisa Mysteri's new book, Placing Outer Space, An Earthly Ethnography of Other Worlds, which is part of Duke's Experimental Futures series. And Lisa looks at outer space as a place. And I found her work to be inspiring as I work on outer space as environment. And she's following scientists and engineers in this book who are producing new ways to understand Earth as a planetary place in comparative relation to other planets. So it is the question of what does it mean to live on Earth becomes slightly different. It becomes the question of what does it mean to live on the planet. And she's detailing the production of scientific investment in these places, such as the increasingly familiar landscape of Mars, which you can actually access as part of the Google Earth platform. So sort of collapsing the idea of Earth and Mars as co-constituting spaces in the world of the Internet, or the growing production of exoplanetary earthly others. What does it mean to look into the universe and recognize earthly others. So in addition to this, though, I'm also looking forward to work from people like historian Lisa Rusland, who is doing an environmental history of low Earth orbit as an increasingly anthropogenically impacted environment, as well as a platform for the production of earthly environmental knowledge. And another really great set of work that's coming out is by Asif Siddiqui, who is a wonderful spaceflight historian who has received funding to study the Indian Space Program and also Guggenheim funding to study a set of gateways, as he calls them, across the globe, places in which people have created structures and systems to go into space for a whole variety of reasons that don't, again, map exactly onto the governmental or military reasons for doing so, and which, taken all in all, all of this new work and his work in particular in particular leads the way to sort of creating a body of global comparative space history literature, which I think will be a great contribution to social science. The other set of sounds, I wonder if you have any comment on, is sort of the inverse of the sounds of Earth and, and, and the way that the Earth can be reimagined as a planet. That sort of outward, perhaps even colonial, non-translatable element where they're often trying to translate these various um, electromagnetic waves and scientific data into some sort of sound that mirrors almost abstract art when you listen to it. And, you know, what those sounds might mean that are scientific noise and data, in a way, converted to something meaningful? Yes, I think um, new work by the anthropologist Stefan Helmreich, Sounding the Limits of Life, addresses the ways in which sounds like this, sounds that go beyond the visual, how sound creates a sensory scape in which to understand life as something that is multi-sensory and something that transcends even the bounds of biological life calls attention to the possible ways in which anthropology might begin to think about its engagement with 
things that exceed the boundaries of biological life and in which we begin to, to look at non-life and the non-living as a extension of the world in which we live in, especially because such sounds, I think, serve to remind us that outer space is most of what nature is, in fact, and this tiny oasis that we live on in between the surface of the Earth and the high atmosphere is a very rare and unique space within the scope and scale of nature. And I think these sounds are ways that we can connect with that. A few different things come to mind, but sort of last official question about predictions of the future. And there's a lot of different ways of answering this question. I'd love to know your thoughts on the future itself or even on this type of question. Definitely. Well, I've been following this for a long time, this sort of emergence of particular technologies that catch on not just the official space technologies authorized by governments, but technologies that interest other publics and other social groups. And I expect that one development that's going to be very important is going to be the proliferation of CubeSat projects. So these are affordable miniaturized satellites. These are satellites that don't, relative to large satellites, cost a lot of money to produce. They can be owned and put into outer space, which is going to diversify the production, the ownership, and the use of satellite-based data. And the development of small-scale space programs. So yesterday I received an email from Space Generation, which is the United Nations Global Youth Space Network, announcing that a transnational group of engineers and scientists are soliciting Kickstarter funds for the Irazu project, which will be the first Costa Rican satellite. And this satellite will be dedicated to climate change analysis of Costa Rican forests and their carbon sequestration processes. So the development and funding of this CubeSat project is going to allow them to design customized climate change data production between Costa Rica and outer space. So one result of this is the introduction of some freedom from dependency on secondhand climate change data from global North space programs. And so social scientists of all kinds begin to note that there's a sort of super globalization going on in Earth orbit, particularly in low Earth orbit with the proliferation of new kinds of satellites. And these CubeSats are an interesting introduction that complicate the idea of what satellites do and the kinds of knowledge production that they authorize. And I think this is really interesting, and it will be really interesting to follow the development of this Costa Rican satellite. We often imagine space as this endless void in film, but... There's a lot of stuff in orbit, is my understanding, and keeping track of it and it becoming overwhelmed to the extent where it becomes dangerous to be in parts of orbit. It seems to be an increasing concern. I wonder if you have thoughts about this in the future. Yes, this is becoming a concern. Of course, people might remember the scene in WALL-E where the rocket is busting through all of the space garbage, this dense layer of space garbage around the Earth. There is still a lot of space out there, not of stuff, obviously, but there is an increasing concern with low Earth orbit and the proliferation of objects. And this is actually interesting because it's part of the extension of national and international environmental law and environmental policies into space and reminds us that the space environment boundaries are not the same as 
other kinds of boundaries, territorial boundaries that people have on Earth. So it'll be interesting to see what kinds of international accords, agreements, and collaborations or not emerge out of the need to regulate solar Earth orbit. And this will have quite an impact on the sort of general perception of where the environment begins and ends for human beings. The astronaut Scott Kelly, who I believe was an identical Mm -hmm. twin and spent approximately one straight year in space, it was presented as a very significant situation to understand about the human body, and he's become a little bit of a celebrity of the moment. I wonder if you might just say, you know, something about the idea of an identical twin in space, and and what what do you get out of that? Yeah, it's an interesting thing if you think about it as a kind of iconic representation. And astronauts do serve a role as a particular form of representative humans, both in terms of the production of government interests in space and or social interests in space of all kinds. But you have this interesting moment in which two human beings who have spent their lives in the same environment become separated and subjected to very different environments. So what's interesting perhaps is the idea of a shift in the attention from biological similarities and differences to environmentally induced similarities and differences. And you can see this in the emergence of epigenetics and other kinds of environmentally based medical understandings of human difference. And in some ways, astronauts oftentimes stand as iconic representations of changes in science and changes in forms of understandings of the human body. And in this case, you can very much see that these twins are being compared in terms of their environmental similarity in a very extreme way. It's almost the opposite of twins separated at birth. Um, it's just exactly. Twins, uh, you know, twins not separated at birth and just separated for a year in, in a different way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so is there anything else that comes to mind that you wish we had just touched on or you wanted to mention? Not really. I, you know, my main interest is in trying to promote the work of other people who are getting into this field. I think there's really exciting work that is going to have a huge impact on just how we think about space as a field. Like, these are people I very much respect and I think deserve a lot of attention. Something that occurs to me just you know, chatting with you and uh, David and Deborah is that almost like you know, Lisa's engagement with people looking for other worlds, there is a different sort of collegiality even in this anthropological endeavor. Um, mm. a, a different type of relationship to other scholars. A sense that it's not easy work and that there's a different kind of stake and a different kind of really earnest promotion of other academic work and developing a community that you don't often see in every um, thematic field or or topic in anthropology, for example. And I've noticed Mm -hmm. that without exception, anyone working in this realm, from Lisa to Michael Omar Reagan, who I've worked with a little bit, is a young up-and-comer, there's this really strong desire to promote everyone else, to create a culture of work. I get the sense that there's something more to it, something that more mirrors maybe the people working on water filtration, that there's larger human stakes that people really believe in. Yeah, I would agree with you that I have experienced 
just some of the most inspiring collegial support and exchange among this small group of people trying to ask questions about the human relationship with faith that's so distant from everyday experience and yet close at the same time. And I think one of the things that creates a sense of shared interest in stakes is the idea that these projects appear to contravene some of anthropology's basic reasons for doing work, but what we're finding is the work we're doing might actually uphold and in fact shed new light on some of anthropology's basic questions about relationality, spatiality, and about what counts as the shared spatial experience of social life. And I personally am extremely invested in a future of strongly collective anthropology in which people do projects together, publish together. And I think that bizarreness of space brought many of us together as it would if we were living in space, as a matter of fact. And I think that collectivity has been one of the greatest experiences I've had as an anthropologist is the collective support and work that has been done by people trying to think about the human relationship with space. Well, thank you very much. And it's a pleasure to talk. It has been such a pleasure. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. I'm Willie Lempert, and thank you for listening to this episode of Anthropod. I want to thank Marios Valeris, the executive producer, the Society for Cultural Anthropology, and NASA for providing their sound archive. Thank you for joining us on the final leg of this journey to better understand the emerging anthropologies of outer space. Like finding water on the moon We would also like to thank Vox Media for the use of their illustrated image of an astronaut holding the iconic three-colored Neapolitan space ice cream. See you next time on Anthropod. And from the crew of Apollo 8, close with good night, good luck, and bless all of you, all of you on the good earth.